Today we continue with our sermon series titled Life on the Line. Um, Remember, our lives have two phases, right? There's a dot phase and a line phase. When you place your life on the timeline of eternity, your present life is but a dot. You were born, you live, and you die. But there is a line phase. After your dot phase is over, you will spend the rest of eternity living on the line either in God's presence with great joy or far from God's presence with great sorrow. And so the goal of this series is to get us to ponder more that line life, that line phase, so that our dot phase of life can be changed for good and so that we can live today with great purpose and joy. Today we begin our look at God's plan of our resurrection. Just as Jesus was resurrected from the dead to an eternal bodily existence, so too all who trust in him will one day be resurrected into new glorious resurrection bodies like our Lord's, to live on a glorious recreated heaven and earth to come that we spoke of last time. Now this church in Corinth needed to be taught the details of this resurrection to come. They were frantically living busy lives for the dot phase of life. And so Paul points them to the resurrected life on the line that is to come, so that their short dot lives may be lived with greater purpose and joy. Now, I don't know about you, but I think I could use that blessing and instruction as well. Are you ready? Um, It'd be good if you have your Bibles, open them up, page 961, 1 Corinthians 15. Page 961, 1 Corinthians, verses 1, 15, 1 through 26. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I received, also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still um, alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I'm the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and by his grace towards me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God, because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. Then all who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. And uh, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. 
For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each to his own order. Christ, the first fruits. Then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end. When he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. This is the word of God. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. If you want to know God, if you want to know his will, if you want to know his way, then we must know his word. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for this word to us. Oh, that we would believe it. Oh, that our minds would try to wrap around this eternal glory to come. We are far too easily pleased with things on earth that wrap our, our hearts around. Help us to flee from these things that our lives may be rested more and more in Christ Jesus and this promise of resurrection to come, we pray. Amen. You know, I have a number of books in my library. I think it's part of a pastor's job description is to, is to uh, fill bookshelves <laughs> until you need more bookshelves. Over the years, my mother has given me some books. I don't know if your parents give you books, but um, one of the books she gave me a while ago is by the famous t TV doctor, Sanjay Gupta. The book is titled Chasing Life. It's even grown into a podcast and a big TV series. Now, let me preface by saying I like Sanjay Gupta. <laughs> I like him, all right? Uh, he does a great job on TV of exploring all the trends in medicines, things to help you live longer and happier lives. But, well, I do take issue with the hope that he's attached to. It's in the subtitle of his book. The book is titled Chasing Life. Its subtitle, listen, is this, New Discoveries in the Search for Immortality to Help You Age Less Today. While this book does so many good and helpful things to help us live longer, fruitful lives, its goal is that if you will just be able to live long enough, you will be able to experience immortality, eternal life. What does he mean? Well, Gupta says that there's a day coming when modern science will be able to fix every illness and ailment. For instance, if your heart wears out, it can be recreated in a Petri dish and put back in. So Gupta's hope is in a day to come in which there is no more death, at least not from natural causes. His hope is to live until that day finally comes. And here's the final words of his book. Immortality is on the horizon. It's within our reach for our first time. The path to immortality will not always be easy, but for Sage and for me, that's his daughter, it is worth it. I'm sure you feel the same way. There's nothing more important. To which I say yes and no. I say yes, there really is nothing more important than immortality, to live forever. And we can praise Gupta for what he's doing. He's, he's doing what many people avoid. He's, he's looking at the timeline. <laughs> He's looking at life in view of eternity. But there's another book on my bookshelf, and it's by Ernest Becker. Perhaps you've read it. It actually won the Pulitzer Prize. It's titled, The Denial of Death. Now, I wasn't able to call Ernest Becker on the phone and ask him what he thinks of Gupta's book because, well, he passed away of cancer in 1974, the year after he published the book. But from reading his book, I can kind of gather what he might think of Gupta's book. Becker is, was a social anthropologist. He incorporated many different scientific disciplines. He studied the human psyche, trying to figure out what makes us tick. 
And he found out through lots of research that humanity, well, we're not really chasing life. We're fleeing death. That is, our lives are a complex game of living in denial of our own death. Cheery topic, huh? So my take on Gupta's take would be that Becker would say something like this. Sanjay, all you're chasing after life is really an elaborate fleeing from the reality of death. You see, Becker makes an interesting point regarding how we humans respond to this fear of death. One response, he says, is to chase after some epic victory in life. Career, you know, some epic uh, thing that will make your life more meaningful um, in, in a way in which we avoid our fear of death. Gupta's chasing of life is a pursuit of something epic, right? But is doomed to failure. Why? Because the solution that we need must come from outside the dot. It must come from heaven. So to flee from death, my friends, is something that all humans do. We flee from death, but we call it chasing after life. And we do this through so many different means, do we not? Perhaps it could be, you know, taking your vitamins, drinking your milk, exercising regularly so you can postpone death. Perhaps it could be creating wealth for yourself, whereby you can numb yourself with experiences or put up a big fence around your house to provide safety. Or perhaps for you, chasing after life is skydiving or living large or chasing after that Instagram-worthy life, hashtag no regrets, hashtag 100%, right? <laughs> Do you see this denial of death? Do you see this chasing after life in your own life? Few of us do. Our sermon text today is the answer to all your longings. Let me repeat that. Our sermon text today is the answer to all your longings. See, whereas Gupta says to place your hope in a day to come when human medical advancements will allow you to live forever so long as you don't fall off a cliff, Paul points us to the very gospel, the good news that is ours in Christ Jesus. God's own, very own son has won the epic victory for us over death. He alone can bring the immortality that we long for. And God has a day coming that is far greater than Gupta's day. In our passage, Paul tries hard to get his readers to understand that just as Jesus physically rose from the dead, so too one day all who trust in him will be raised physically from the dead. Now, just what will these physical bodies look like? Well, we'll cover that next week. You'll have to come back. Today, we begin where Paul begins with the reality of the resurrection to come. Paul wants us to grasp the grace of God for us in this age to come so that we'll be able to live in these dot phase of life that we're in with victory and purpose and joy. No longer denying death, no longer ignoring death, no longer chasing life in the dot phase. Instead, living now with great freedom because of the victory of Christ for us. So this morning we will study the reality of the resurrection under three headings, the certainty, the essentiality, and the satisfaction. First, the certainty. Our day of resurrection is certain, and since it is certain to come, it must change how we live during this dot phase of our lives. Let's look at the certainty. How can we know for certain that those who belong to Christ will one day experience an eternal resurrection of our bodies and dwell on the renewed physical earth that we talked about in the last sermon? Well, there's two reasons from our text. First, the resurrection is central to the gospel plans of God. And second, 
Christ's resurrection is our proof that we too will be resurrected. First, your resurrection is certain. Why? Because the resurrection of God's people to everlasting life is central to all that God is doing. It is central to the gospel that we have received. We see in verse 1 and 2. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you were being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Throughout this whole letter, if you've read it, I'm sure many of you have, Paul has to continually remind these Christians of the gospel, the basic gospel message. Why? Because they were immature Christians who lived for the dot, and not with the certainty of the life on the line to come. I think we too can be like those Corinthians, so we need reminding of the simple gospel too. And what is the simple gospel message? We see it in verses 3 through 5. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. You know, I think many Christians limit the gospel to that first part, that Christ died for our sins. But Paul says Christ died for our sins, was, was buried, and was raised on the third day, all in accordance with Scripture. So please understand this. Jesus didn't come to earth just to die for your sins so that you would be forgiven. No, forgiveness of your sins is a necessary part of what God is doing so that Jesus may take you somewhere else special. Think about all those times you've been invited to a party. I've been invited to a lot of parties lately. Uh, just the other night, Leslie and I were invited to a party, and what do we do? Uh, we cleanse ourselves by taking a nice shower. We fuss with our hair, put on nice clothes. We make ourselves presentable, right? My friends, that is what Jesus has done for you. He cleanses you. He fusses over you and makes you presentable. But he does so not so you can sit at home, but so that he can take you to come with him to join the party. Jesus died for your sins according to the scriptures so that you may be made ready for the glory to come at the end of the age. That's God's end game. Jesus forgives our sins so that he can take us deeper into the gracious plans of God for this world. God sent Jesus to make your dot life fit and ready. Does that make sense? For the eternal life that is to come. Resurrection is central to the gospel. So if you're in Christ, then your resurrection is certain it is central to God's eternal plan. But we also need proof. You know, many years ago, it was believed that Mount Everest was unclimbable. But then on May 29, 1953, Sir Edmund Hillary and Tenzing Norgay spent 15 minutes on the top of Everest, taking in all the glory that could be seen. As of last month, 6,098 different people have made it to the top. Because Hillary and Norgay proved that climbing Everest is possible, over 6,000 other climbers have reached the summit. To use Paul's language, Hillary and Norgay were the first fruits of a greater harvest of climbing to come. That is what Jesus has done for us. His resurrection is proof that the great day of our resurrection is coming. But did he really rise from the dead? Here's where some of us not, moderns need to be challenged. We suffer from an elitism. C.S. Lewis called it chronological snobbery. <laughs> we moderns consider ourselves wise, but those ancient people, they were gullible and ignorant. They believed all kinds of stupid stuff. 
They were quick to believe in things like dead people coming back to life. My friends, nothing could be further from the truth. Nobody in the ancient Greco-Roman world believed that resurrections were even remotely possible. And they were surrounded by death every day, far more than you and I. No plant, no animal, no human person comes back from the dead. And the people in Corinth were raised in this Greco-Roman mindset. They were huge skeptics, and we know they doubted. Why? Because verse 12, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? Some of you are here saying there is no resurrection of the dead. We have evidence and proof that there is. If you're skeptical that God raised Jesus from the dead, well, so too were the people in Corinth. What does Paul do? He provides proof, not scientific proof. Because Jesus' resurrection didn't happen in a laboratory. It is not repeatable according to the scientific method. And there were no iPhones back then to record the event. But there were witnesses, hundreds of them. A criminal today can be sentenced to life in prison on the testimony of just one witness. Ancient Jewish law required the testimony of two or three witnesses before a person could be declared guilty. Here in our passage, we have over 200 times that requirement being met. Paul starts listing out all kinds of people who saw Jesus in the flesh after he rose from the dead. Who saw the resurrected Savior? Verse 5, uh, he appeared to Cephas. Cephas is another name for the apostle Peter. Then he appeared to the 12. That would be the rest of the disciples. In verse 6, Paul writes that he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. That's what uh, Christians, we fall asleep. We don't necessarily die. And he appeared to Jesus' half-brother James. He was a leader at the Jerusalem church. And he appeared to all the apostles, including Paul himself. What is, what is Paul doing? He's saying, Corinthians, <laughs> Jesus rose from the dead. Hundreds of people saw him. Most of them are still alive. I know it's a long journey, but if you doubt me, Take the Greyhound bus, go to Jerusalem, ask around, and you will find many people who saw him. And so you see what Paul is doing? He's saying, I get your doubts. I know you're skeptical. But just do this. Think through the evidence. The evidence proves that Jesus is risen from the grave, just like he said he would. And because the proof of Jesus was raised from the dead, and because of the resurrection, that it's central to the gospel, we are to have certainty for our own resurrections. Certainty. Christian, think about it. God wants you to have certainty with regards to the resurrection to come. Why? Because certainty gives us confidence to live by faith today and not by sight. God wants us to delight, to delight that there's a glorious day to come without any of the horrors of life today. No more sin, no more death, no more sorrow. God has a day when glory will come in its fullness and heaven will come down to earth and God will come down to dwell with us and we will be resurrected from the dead and we will enjoy day after day of everlasting, ever-increasing happiness and joy. What this means is that whatever life you're chasing on earth, it is but a transient, pungent missed compared to the reality that God has in store. Listen, your absolute best day on earth, think of it, what was your absolute best day on earth in your dot life? It will be like pocket lint compared to what God has for you in the life to come. Do you understand that? 
And yet we live life digging in our pockets. Isn't this great? So please, get this hope into your head. We've seen that the resurrection to come is a certainty. Let us now see that it's also essential. Think about when, uh, think back to when you were in school. I know for some of you, you have to really dig deep in the memory banks. You remember how hard each semester was, all the time in class, all the studying, all the test taking. Now remember how much forward you look to the breaks, the breaks to come, Thanksgiving break, Christmas break, spring break. Don't stay in spring break too long. Having a break over the horizon allowed you to press on and succeed in your studies, did it not? The hope of the future changed how you lived in the present. So too with this certain hope of the resurrection to come. The big idea here is this. The promise of the resurrection to come is essential to how we live today. Verses 12 through 19, Paul shows us how essential it is. Verse 12. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? For context, some influential leaders in Corinth were, were telling the other Christians, there's no such thing as resurrection of the dead. So Paul wants his readers to understand how essential it really is. So he imparts the consequences if there is no resurrection of the dead. He gives a bunch of if-then statements. Did you see them in the passage? I'll run through them quickly. Look in your Bibles. Verse 13. But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. He's saying, if you insist that there be no such thing as the dead in Christ rising someday, then guess what? Christ himself didn't rise. Verse 14. If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. All of Paul's teaching, all of it, all of the Christian message is in vain. Why? Because the good news of the gospel centers upon the risen Savior. Think about it. There is no Christianity without the resurrection of Christ. All other world religions can have a founder who's dead. Think about that. Buddha is dead. Muhammad dead. Joseph Smith dead. All the world's religions except Christianity can exist without their founders being alive. Why is this? Because all the world's religions except Christianity are about the teachings, not the teacher. But Christianity isn't so much about the teachings to follow. It's about a Savior who has been risen from the dead, who's alive, and who reigns on a throne in heaven, and who will one day bring about the end of times and usher in eternal glory. And so for Christianity to be true, Christ must be alive, and he is. Paul says in verse 17, he says, And if Christ has not been raised, then your faith is futile, and you're still in your sins. Verse 18, then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. Think about it. If there is no resurrection, then all who've trusted in Christ now or, or grandma and grandpa who've passed away, they've perished. We will perish in our sins. Talk about consequences. Christ has to be resurrected from the dead. Otherwise, we're toast. The last consequence is seen in verse 19, and it makes logical sense. Verse 19, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are, of all people, most to be pitied. What is he saying? Well, in other words, if the secular humanists are right, that there is no life after death, then the Christians are the most pitiful people on, on earth. Why? Because we love this world like God loves this world, but our greatest hope is in the age to come, where God renews all things. We live for the line, not for the dot. 
And so Christians would be the most laughable people on earth if there is no resurrection. The Stoics and the Epicureans were right if Christ is not raised from the dead. On the one hand, Stoicism was common in ancient Corinth. Stoics resolved not to let life get the best of you. You must temper your expectations, control your emotions. Many today live like this, perhaps you. You're dutiful. You don't complain, at least not very much. Well, maybe you might be a little critical how others lack control like you. The problem with Stoics is they downplay life. They shun the joyful experience and the flourishing of life that God has made us all to experience. God has made us in his image. And listen, he's a joyful, happy, fruitful, creative, artistic God. And we were designed for dignity to experience life like this. But Stoics suppress it and tell them that they're better off for it. Another popular worldview in Corinth was that of the Epicureans. You know their famous motto, eat, drink, for tomorrow you die. Modern Epicureans are all over in America. They live as if this life is all there is. So take the bull by the horns, live it up, down a vodka Red Bull, and shout out really loud, YOLO! Listen, Stoics despise the 50 shades of gray of the Epicureans, and the Epicureans loathe the one shade of gray of the Stoics. And so Paul admits that if the gospel of Christ only gives you hope in this life, but there is no age to come, then we Christians are pitiful. And so you might as well just live in denial of death and chase after life like everybody else. Think about it. If there is no resurrection to come, then why follow Jesus' commands to not store up treasure on earth? Why? Why turn the other cheek? Why be a peacemaker? I mean, anger and, and, and bitterness is so much easier in life, right? Why? If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied but... Did you catch that? After all the if-then statements, Paul writes in verse 20, but, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. And this changes everything. Resurrection is essential to God's good plan for the universe. So we've seen the certainty of the resurrection and the essentiality of the resurrection now for the satisfaction. Paul wants us to see how utterly satisfying God's plan is. I think we need that help. We often think, how good could it be, right? Think this through. There is no future plan that you could ever dream up that could be as satisfying as what you will experience with the resurrection of your body to come. Nothing you could ever imagine. See, the problem with the Stoics' worldview and the Epicureans' worldview and Gupta's worldview is that they cannot truly satisfy. The Stoics want you to gain a stiff upper, upper, stiff upper lip in your denial of death. Epicureans want you to chase after life in order to live in denial of death. Gupta wants you to do your best to live longer so you can experience a medical miracle. But none of these pass the timeline test. 
Only the gospel gives you a hope that truly satisfies. Think about it. Why in the end is Gupta's hope never going to satisfy you? Because in the end, it's terrifying. Think about it. You know, it's true. There may be a day when medicine becomes so advanced that your entire body can be healed of every malady. But will you delight in this day? I don't think so. Let me explain why we need God's remedy, not man's. See, having a man-made immortality will only enslave you to an even greater fear in life. It will take the living out of life. If doctors can fix any illness you have so that you could theoretically live forever, would you ever go skydiving or bike riding? <laughs> no, it's way too risky. My guess is that all of humanity would live in hiding behind safe and secure walls. And whereas now we live mostly in denial of our death, then death would haunt our every waking moment. Can you picture that? Think about the fear you would have to live under constantly. You would hear stories of people accidentally dying and therefore losing their so-called immortal life. The news reports would tell us of stories of those who left their VR goggles and their safe houses and walked to the edge of the Grand Canyon, but sadly slipped and fell to their death. Think about how utterly terrifying life would become. It would become a lifeless life. Why? Because no matter what mankind does, death is still our enemy. That is why we need God to destroy death. And my friends, that is what God does through his son. Paul shows us in this last set of verses of our passage, he gives us a condensed eternal timeline in which you need to find yourself. He wants us to see that the resurrection of Christ has come and that he is now on his throne and he's working out everything. He's ruling and reigning from heaven. He shows us this cosmic battle that is taking place in the heavenly realms, also that we can find ourselves on God's timeline too. And when we find ourselves there, we'll find ourselves safe in his hands. And being in his hands are, oh, so satisfying. Let's begin verse 20. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Paul is saying that, that that resurrection 2,000 years ago is a first fruit of an, of an enormous harvest of resurrections to come. But then he goes even further back on the timeline to show that how Jesus has fixed the problem of death that Adam brought into the world. Verse 21, for as by a man death came, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each to his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Listen, on God's eternal timeline, Christ has already undone this curse of Adam. At the beginning of history, sin and death came into the world through Adam. But in Christ, we now have eternal life and resurrection from the dead. On God's timeline, 2,000 years ago is where it took place, on the cross and with the empty tomb. But this world is still under the grip of God's enemies and sin and death, which is why he points us to the future. Verse 22, there is a day coming when in Christ shall all be made alive. Paul wants us to place our lives on that timeline, somewhere in between Jesus' death and resurrection and his coming again to give us resurrected lives. Can you see yourself somewhere on that timeline? 
And verse 23 says, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ, they'll be raised to new life. There's a day coming when Christ will return, and all who belong to him will be resurrected in new glorious bodies. Again, we'll look at this next week. I know for some of you this just seems so weird, but it is really what you long for. This day is coming, but we're not there yet. But when it comes, it will be immensely satisfying. Why? Because something will take place that is not on Gupta's timeline or anybody else's timeline. What is on God's timeline to come? Focus on these words at the beginning of verse 24. Then comes the end. Then comes the end. Gupta's hope for immortality and every other hope is a failure because what? It doesn't bring about an end. It doesn't bring about an end to the curse that this world is under. It doesn't bring an end to the evil powers, the authorities that presently have this world living in denial of death. But God says there is a day on his timeline which, which reads, picture this, the end has come. And Jesus delivers on that day the kingdom of God to the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. Take a second to think. Jesus is on his throne, ruling over this day, waiting for this day to happen. He's waiting for it more than you. You understand that? And he loves you so much that he wants you to know that this day is coming. You are in the hands of your precious Savior. It shows you just how much he truly loves you. He has a, a day planned that you hardly can fathom, and it's coming. And verse 25 says, For he, Jesus, must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. So there you go. Right now, Jesus is on his throne in heaven. I know it might not, might not seem that way in this world. But Jesus does have everything under his control, under his rule, under his reign. There's a day coming when his victory over sin and death is final, and the curse of Adam will be forever undone. And then what comes next? We're almost done. Look at how our passage ends, verse 26. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. God in his grace and mercy destroys death. The thing we live in great denial of the thing that causes us to chase after all kinds of foolish ways of living. There's a day coming when death is dead. <laughs> it shall pass away. What an amazing promise. Because the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ is on his throne and ruling and reigning, there is a day coming when your, your great enemy, death itself, will be destroyed. So where are you placing your hope today? And do you see why we gather every Sunday? Why we walk through these doors in our frail, dot-life bodies. Bodies subject to decay and disease. Bodies with souls that are still so tempted to sin. And we walk in with our dot-lives, and we remind ourselves of this glorious gospel we've received. And once again, we stand on it. And we delight that by this gospel, we are being saved. And we hold fast, do we not, each and every week to this hope. And we lift our hearts to, this, to our Savior on his throne as heaven. We're going to sing to that here in a few moments. 
and we rejoice that Jesus died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures because this is all part of God's eternal plan. And we hold fast to this word that is preached to us for it alone is the truth that transcends our mortal lives. It alone is the solution that allows us to face the reality of our own mortality. Oh, how wonderful the plans of God. The resurrection of Christ means that all who trust in him will experience that resurrection glory to come. It is certain, it is essential, and it is oh so satisfying. Let's pray. Father, in many ways, this just seems way too good to be true. Um, and we, we cannot quite wrap our heads around it. But we're thankful that you've got it figured out. <laughs> we're thankful that you want us to understand this more fully. You want us to see where our lives fit into eternity. So that our lives would be forever changed. Your glory would be pressed into us. And we can respond with praise towards heaven. May that be your work in us right now, we pray. Amen.